Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Then in Luke, in Matthew chapter 2, Verse 10, speaking of the wise men, when they heard the king, they departed. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this message of great joy, of good news, of glad tidings, of goodwill toward men, of peace on earth. Father, help us to see by faith not the lack of peace that is all around us, but the peace that you have won and that you provide for us in Jesus Christ a peace that is eternal, a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that shall never fade, shall never fleet away. Father, a joy unspeakable and full of glory, that peace won for us gives to us your great joy. And Father, I pray that as your people, as your church in the earth, we would be a people that would ooze forth your joy. Father, we confess that is not always easy. But we look to you and we rely upon you and of your grace. We ask that, Lord, you would make us a people filled with your joy to give witness to a world that not only needs your peace, but needs your joy that is our strength. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. A message of great joy. That is what was brought, given to, to shepherds. It is the message that the wise men knew when they saw the star. It's why they followed the star. They knew the promise. The message of great joy. The angel said, do not be afraid. The angel said this to terrified shepherds. We have kind of a romantic notion of angels, I think, sometimes especially at Christmas time, we watch movies like It's a Wonderful Life, and we think angels are like um, Clarence, you know, the old guy helping out Jimmy Stewart. Uh, he's trying to earn his wings. Uh, that's that's not, it's not the way the Bible presents angels. It's the way Hollywood presents them, and it's a very entertaining and heartwarming movie. But don't get your theology from Hollywood. Get your theology from the Bible. Views into the realm of angels 
or angels entering into our visible realm are rare exceptions. And those shepherds needed the assurance of those words, do not be afraid. These were messengers of God sent to deliver the long-awaited announcement, the birth announcement of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This was an announcement long awaited by both the forces of light and the forces of darkness. This announcement was long feared by the forces of darkness and long anticipated by the forces of light. The coming of the light would dispel the darkness, for the darkness can in no way stand in the presence of the light who is Christ. Do you believe that, church? I hope you do. As you read the scripture from beginning to end, I hope you noticed that there is much warfare presented to us in the scripture. And we may be tempted to read the Old Testament, especially as just a historical record of the nation of Israel and all the the wars and the conflicts they were involved in trying to take their land. And many people would say they took it unjustly, but they did not. They took it under commandment of God because it is their land. But I want to submit to you, it's not just their land. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. The earth, the very earth itself, belongs to God's people. And the reason the scripture is filled with so much warfare is because we are still today in the midst of warfare. Whether you realize that or not, that is true. You are right now in the midst of a great spiritual warfare. What you should know is that the the outcome of that warfare has already been determined. Jesus is the victor. He has already won the victory. This is why we can have joy and rejoice greatly. We don't have to wonder about the ultimate outcome. But we do need to be a people engaged in the midst of the spiritual warfare that is taking place all around us, in our lives, around our lives. And whether you believe it does or not, it absolutely impacts you and it impacts every one of us. And if we as God's people do not know who we are, who our Savior King is, who our Lord is, who has already won the victory, we may be deceived into thinking that we are in a fight for our lives and the outcome of that fight is in question. Well, it is not. If you belong to Jesus, you have already been given victory. But there is a warfare that we must wage each and every day. That's not what the preacher says. That's what the scripture says. But we wage that warfare knowing that Jesus has won the peace, and we wage that warfare knowing that his joy is our strength. And in the midst of the greatest, hottest warfare, we can wage it with joy knowing that Jesus Christ has won the victory. This is why the news proclaimed that night the Savior was born, was glad tidings, good news of great joy, of 
peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Christ is the light that dispels the darkness, and the darkness has no choice but to be consumed by his light. The church must once again believe this truth, for we are living in a time in which we need his light to consume the darkness. And what did Jesus say of each and every one of us? You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. We're not waiting for Jesus to come back from heaven and dispel the darkness. Jesus has put his light in you. He has put each one of us on this earth. He's put you here to be the light of the world, to dispel the darkness so that the light in you would consume the darkness around you. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. The good tidings of great joy the angels declared, and the exceedingly great joy with which the wise men rejoiced was for good reason. The birth of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, is truly reason for great rejoicing, for great joy. And the reason for great joy is why we still celebrate over 2,000 years later. And we will not stop celebrating, for our celebration is eternal. Just as our Savior and Lord and his victory is eternal. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those who know they need a salvation, who need salvation and therefore know they need a Savior, rejoice when the Savior comes. And when they know their need for salvation is exceedingly great, and I hope we know that it is. They will rejoice with exceeding great joy when their Savior comes. In our salvation, there is an inverse relationship between our need for salvation and our joy in the Savior. This means the deeper we feel our need for salvation, the greater our joy and our rejoicing in the Savior. Jesus is not a savior in name only, as the shallow faith of many today implies. Jesus is an actual savior, and he came to actually save his people from their sin, sin that is real. This means the mortal threat from our sin is real, and therefore our savior must be real, and his salvation must be really be effectual, and it is. Why such joy? As the words of the famous hymn resound, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. We might ask, why should the coming of the Lord and the reigning of the Savior produce such great joy? And the answer is because our Lord and Savior is effectually saving us from something and he is effectually ruling over something. In other words, he is not just a savior and a lord in name only. And it is sin that he is effectually saving us from, and it is the world and all things in it that he is powerfully and sovereignly ruling over. There is such joy because we are really being saved, and he is really 
ruling. Do not ever think that Christ is not ruling and reigning right now. He is. He's not in heaven waiting to come rule and reign. He is ruling and reigning right now. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Those words were prophesied seven centuries before the birth of the Savior. And the increase of his government is still increasing. And the increase of his peace is still increasing. And it will not end because he is ruling and reigning right now. Through his body, the church, that's you and that's me. That's all of his body in the earth. Certainly, we have no reason to rejoice with exceedingly great joy if Jesus is not truly the Savior and he is not truly saving us from something and he is not truly ruling, but he is. Without any real salvation, that would be an exercise that is rather sad and meaningless. In other words, if Jesus is just a Savior in name only and there is no real salvation, that's kind of sad and it's really meaningless. This would make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior a man with an empty title. If we look around today, that's really if not professed by many people, is actually the way many people who profess Jesus live their life. If sin is as subjective as our culture declares it to be, Jesus becomes a savior with no one to save. Because who determines whether I need saving from my sin? Well, I do if I get to define what sin is and what sin is not. If sin is subjectively defined by the sinner, not objectively defined by the Bible, there is little or nothing from which man must be saved. Jesus is called Lord and Savior, but too many people live as though Jesus is a Lord and Savior in name only, with no real power and no real authority over anything, much less the lives of sinners. We all sink into this sinful place. Don't think you are immune because I know I'm not either. We can all sink into this sinful place, but in His grace, by His grace, we are to repent when we think that somehow our sin is not worthy of salvation. Or our sin is something that we can manage on our own. And my problem is not that I need a savior. My problem is that I need to be a better sin manager. Well, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to believe. And Christian, I'll tell you right now, you will never manage your sin well enough that you will not, you do not need a savior. Because it is by his grace alone that your sin can be taken away. You can't manage it. That's why Jesus came and died in your stead. Today, it seems fewer and fewer people perceive the need for salvation, and many are content to be their own Lord. The great evangelical or the greater evangelical church seems content, if not willing, 
to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior as long as that proclamation does not make a demand upon our life that is contrary to what we demand for our lives. In other words, many people are willing to say, yes, Jesus is Lord and Savior, as long as that profession does not make a demand on me that I'm unwilling to surrender to. To put it more simply, we may in name declare Jesus as Lord and Savior, but in actuality, we define the terms and remain in control of our life, or we think we do. This means that sin, as defined in Scripture, will continue to be a topic off-limits in many churches. I've heard too many preachers say, well, I don't really talk about sin. I just trust the Holy Spirit to work that out. I'm just going to preach good news. How can we preach good news if we don't need a Savior? How can we, what, what is the good news if I can save myself? What is the good news if my sin is not worth talking about from the pulpits of, of the church? What is good news if all I need is some more information and some better principles to manage my life and manage my sin, to save myself? That's not good news. That's horrible news. But somehow... In the church in America, we've convinced people that that's exactly what they need. But that is not what the Scripture says we need. The Scripture says we need a Savior. The Scripture says we are dead in sin, hopelessly lost. And there is nothing we can do in our own power to save ourselves. Can't do it. For many, addressing sin from the pulpit or the public square is too confrontational, too controversial, and too uncomfortable. It's also considered too condescending and too exclusionary. This is true because sin no longer has an objective definition. It's left up for each and every one to do what's right in their own eyes. And that's exactly what Jesus said sin would produce in a culture left to itself. Sin has become subjectively defined and is a matter of personal belief that is not to be imposed upon another. In light of this way of thinking, there would, be, there would not be much joy associated with a Savior who came to save man from his sin that he doesn't recognize as sin. Right? If you don't know you need salvation, why would you look for and why would you rejoice in a Savior? Well, the answer is you wouldn't. Sin is held subjectively today while the Bible clearly presents it objectively. In other words, it's defined for us. We don't get to define it ourselves. In the world's mentality, sin is not something we need to be saved from. Sin may be something that we need to manage better or actually we just ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist, if not actually celebrated. We now have parades celebrating sin. We have days celebrating sin. We have months celebrating sin. We have people who feel no compulsion to repent of their sin because sin has become 
something we celebrate, or at least something that we don't talk about, and we hope that God deals with it because we actually do believe it's sin, but we dare not speak it from our pulpits for fear of offending the sinner. Do we see Jesus fearful of offending sinners? Was Jesus fearful of offending sinners? He, he was not. That's why he's called the rock of offense, a stumbling stone. God, help us today if we offend someone. God, help us today if we make someone stumble over their sin and they realize they need to deal with it. God will that we do that, that we love men enough to do that, to risk the offense that the gospel brings. Sin is now seen by many as something that doesn't warrant salvation. The church used to be a place where people were affirmed for their obedience to Christ and convicted for their disobedience. Today, the church has become the place where people are affirmed for their choices, whatever they are, as long as those choices do not impose upon another person's choice. Many churches today now recognize and affirm a person's own truth as long as they hold their truth while never imposing it upon another's. Truth and sin are subjectively defined now. If this is not said out loud, it is loud and clear in the practice of many churches and many Christians today. No church should remain, no Christian should remain in a church that will not define truth and define sin objectively as presented in the scripture and then speak the truth in love. And you might ask right now, Pastor, are you saying people should leave churches that don't preach the truth? Yes, I am. Because we're in a war. And we need all the Christians that we can present and accounted for, for what God has placed before us. And you and I don't have time to waste. Our lives are short enough. If you live to be a century old, do you realize how short your life is compared to his story? that has been and continues to go on. And this is your time and my time of visitation on this earth. And we need to be busy about the Father's business, the business of the kingdom, the business of waging warfare against the powers and the principalities. And you say, but wait, Pastor, you said that the war is already won. Yes, it is, but the battle still rages. And there are people still yet to be born again. There are people still yet to be born and to be born again. And you and I don't know how God will use each of our lives to impact those who are yet to be born and yet to be born again, but he will. 
just like somebody impacted your life. You're sitting in a church today hearing the gospel of Christ because someone, somehow, more than one person, somehow, many people impacted your life in ways you didn't even know, in ways that you couldn't go back and connect the dots now if you had to. But God connected the dots. God established the dots and all the connections before the foundation of the world. And he caused you to be born for such a time as this. And now you're hearing the gospel. And you know that now is the time. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. We do not, we must not waste our time precious time that God has given to us. But we must, with joy, enter into that work and enter into that fight. With joy. Knowing that God has privileged us to be a part of his plan and his purpose in the earth today. In too many churches today, the Bible factors in only to the degree that it can be used to affirm personal choices and personal desires with little or no regard for sin, righteousness, or holiness. And this is why our nation is in trouble. The problem in our nation is not first in the sanctuaries of political power in our capitals. The problem in our nation is first in the sanctuaries of spiritual power in our churches. The church has become a center for affirmation based on personal choices and desires, personal choices and personal desires, when God calls it to be the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Do you get that? The church is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. Not wishy-washy, not unstable, not with its finger up in the air trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing lest we offend someone, but the pillar and the ground of the truth. Christianity in our current culture is about being nice and inclusive and non-judgmental in regard to a person's lifestyle choices, whatever those choices might be. Unless, of course, that choice is to actually believe the Bible, live the gospel, preach the gospel, teach the gospel in truth. In other words, by all means, preach and teach the gospel. Just don't do it in a way or in a place that would place a demand on someone's life. This is why men fight against logic and common sense and things that are right before their face and will not acknowledge them as true because if those things are acknowledged as true, we've got to acknowledge this book is true. And if we acknowledge this book, it true, book is true, guess what? We become accountable to the book. And man does not want to be accountable to the book because man doesn't want to be accountable to God. And we know that's true because the first man chose to not be accountable to God, but accountable to himself. And thus, 
all mankind was plunged into sin. And this is our default mode. Jesus, in his grace, has come and has broken that curse and has given us a new heart. And even though we still wage war in our minds because our carnal mind is enmity against the spirit, we are to renew our minds to that truth and be subject to the Lord and to do it with joy. The belief that Jesus actually needs to save us and wants to rule over anything here on this earth has become associated with so-called right-wing fringe elements and Christian nationalism. Both are vilified by the mainstream media and much of the mainline evangelical church. Here is the hard truth. Listen, church, hear this truth because this is true. The Jesus we see in Scripture would be considered a radical and rejected by the religious and the political leaders of our day, just as he was in his day. We know this is true because the same thing is happening to his body, the church, in the earth today. In the face of rejection by the world, for Christ's sake, we should rejoice with exceedingly great joy. Don't be sad. Rejoice. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. In the face of such opposition, it seems, instead of rejoicing, much of the church has given up on the command Jesus gave to us to go and disciple the nations. We throw the Great Commission around a lot, but what does it actually mean? Does it give us reason for joy? much less exceedingly great joy? Well, it most certainly does. Our joy is objective in Christ. It does not waver. Our great commission was given to us by our great Lord and Savior who elicited such exceedingly great joy at his birth. The reason for our joy has not diminished and it certainly has not taken wings and flown away. The joy of the Lord does not blow with the winds of change. It is not one thing today and another tomorrow. It is steadfast, immovable, like our faith and our work is to be in the Lord. The reason for our exceeding great joy, the reason it is alive and well today as it has been forevermore is because of Jesus who is alive and well today and forevermore. The joy associated with our salvation and the rule and the reign of our Lord and Savior is even greater today, for his gospel has filled and is filling the earth. Today, we can see that his gospel has brought transformation to the ends of the earth, but the work is not done. You are here today living in a free nation, as free as it relatively is, because of the gospel. Not as free as it once was, but still the freest place on earth you can live. Still, I believe, the best place on earth you could live. And it's not because our politicians are all that. It's because of the gospel. And if you don't believe that, 
go do a little research and read your history. Not the history the world wants you to read and the world wants you to believe, but go read the real history and the real stories of how the gospel literally transformed the world and brought freedom to multitudes, billions who were enslaved. Today we can see that his gospel has brought transformation to the ends of the earth, but the work is not done. Much more transformation is needed in us and all around us. So we are called to pray and to work steadfastly to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Joy to the world is not the joy of the world. The church today seeks the joy of entertainment instead of the joy of the Lord. One is temporal and heals us lightly. The other is eternal and heals us truly and strengthens us deeply. The kind of joy the world is looking for is very different than the kind of joy Jesus provides his people. The joy of the world is just that, a temporal, worldly joy based on worldly lusts and worldly pursuits that are not the joy of the Lord. And the foundation of this pseudo-joy is not In fact, joy, it is sin. The joy that Christ gives to us is nothing like the joy the world gives and seeks after. Listen to the words of Jesus as he tells his disciples about the abiding and full joy he alone can offer. John 15, 9 through 11, just hours before Jesus is taken to be crucified. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Notice that Jesus links his joy that remains in us and the fullness of our joy to keeping his commandments and abiding in his love. Jesus tells us that the reason he spoke these things to his disciples is that that his joy may remain in them and that their joy would be full. If it is true for them, it is true for us. Keep his commandments and so abide in his love. Do that and his joy will remain in you and your joy will be full. This is not the joy of the world. This is the joy of the Lord. His joy is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. His joy remains in us and fills us to the full. His joy transcends our circumstances as he has overcome the world. This is the joy the angels spoke of. This is why the wise men rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Both the angels and the wise men understood that Christ, the Savior King, would provide a salvation and a rule that would see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Both knew that his joy would overcome great darkness and great suffering As would be seen later, his joy would overcome the suffering and the darkness of even the cross, even the death of the Son of God. God's light 
And God's life in Christ would prevail as he would endure such suffering and such shame for the exceeding great joy set before him. The joy of the Lord in his resurrection life would mean all things sad would become untrue. His joy would swallow up sadness just as his life would swallow up death. And by the way, you are, his people were the joy, is the joy that he saw that gave him the endurance for the cross. All of this will be known and seen because of Christ, but not without his church. He is the head. We are the body. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. We are one with him. And so God does not do anything. Christ does not do anything apart from his church because Christ and his church are one. And that is why his joy is so crucial to all we are and all we do. Truly, the joy of the Lord is our strength. His joy and his strength is not conditional, but overcomes our conditions. The joy and strength, his joy and strength is working in us as the Lord is building Jerusalem. You are the Jerusalem the Lord is building. You are the holy Jerusalem the glorious city that will one day descend from heaven. And if you are still on this earth, when that day comes, the church that is on the earth when that day comes will be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord, and he will descend, and his church will descend, his city will descend upon this earth where we will rule and reign with him as kings and priests forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord. You have been called to worship him. You have confessed your sin. You have received the assurance of pardon. You have been consecrated by his word. Now you are invited to his table to commune with him, to celebrate at this thanksgiving table for what Christ has done. Christian, rejoice with exceedingly great joy. For God invites you to dine with him, to sup with him, to eat his bread and drink his wine at his table, to be renewed, to be refreshed, to be restored, and to go back out to the commission and the mission he has given to you in Christ. Welcome to the table. Welcome to Jesus. Stand, church, for your charge and your commission. The words of the angel, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. In other words, to every tribe, every tongue, every people on this earth. Rejoice with exceeding great joy. For there is born to you in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior to save us from our sin, a Lord to rule us and to make us his very own special treasure. As I preach to myself, I say to us all, do not let your circumstances determine what you will do with his joy. 
but let his joy determine what you will do with your circumstances. His joy remains that your joy may be full. Therefore, Christian, rejoice with exceedingly great joy, for Jesus Christ, our King, is born. He lived and died and lives forever. He is our victorious Savior, and He is Lord of all. Merry Christmas. Let's sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.